just to pick up where we left off and we said that if we're going <coughs> to um, uh, forge a conceptual framework, then um, there's a lot of uh, elements uh, of our existence that it needs to account for, include, make sense of, give vital place and purpose to, and kind of tie together. And um, part of just very quickly, you know, repeating what we said, um, we're acknowledging its um, historical place, its historically condition, contingent, um, that it's not, we're not devising some kind of, discovering some ultimately true, grand um, conceptual framework or theory uh, that's completely ahistorical, um, where recognize there's always a way of looking, um, which includes uh, the concept and the way of looking and the concept um, shapes, determines, gives rise to experience and vice versa. Uh, that it needs to support soul making. That it needs to um, support a fertility and widening of um, experience and also of ideation, in fact, as well. Um, support um, a widening and an opening of other ways of knowing and not limiting that um, in, in some kind of epistemicide, that it's opening embodied ways of looking without pre-prescribed limits to it. We're not shrinking down to um, a claim that there's just one right way of looking uh, called whatever it is, mindfulness or or science or whatever, uh, and some kind of naive notion that one, there's only one way of looking uh, and it reveals one uh, reality, even if we don't use the word truth. Uh, we're not shrinking down in any kind of monotheism of, uh, in that way. We're incorporating dependent origination, the idea of ways of looking, and, and the whole fact of emptiness of things. And we're even including uh, the idea that logoi break, conceptual frameworks even break, shatter, melt, need to expand, all that. And that uh, we can never fully understand something like Eros because of that. So all that's quite, it's quite a lot. And we, we even said more about other aspects of our existence. Um, that need to be included. But if we just pick out for now uh, to pick up our, our thread again and and um, we need a conceptual framework that supports soul making. So if we, if we pick these up uh, individually um, we've said before the logos needs to support needs to allow the psyche, the image and the eros. If, if we want a logos that supports soul making if we take that aspect, somehow we want a conceptual framework that supports soul-making, then the logos that we have of whatever it is we are in relationship to needs to support the imaginal perception that's happening and needs to support the erotic connection. So, for example, back to that idea of the divinity of Eros. That idea, that conception, that logos in the moment functions, if I'm really incorporating, if I'm really um, bringing it into the way of looking, that will um, affect what happens, what I actually experience and how I actually live, how I relate to life. Uh, it's supportive of soul making. 
um, the idea of discrepancy-based processing that I mentioned um, a while back, to me, that's not, not... I mean, it might be to a very limited extent because it helps kind of discern between um, different things. Maybe it creates a bit of letting go or something. But its soul, its potential as a soul-making, supporting logos is very, very limited. Very limited. And there's a way that, you know, thinking too much with those kinds of ideas um, actually will really um, <coughs> constrain um, the whole eros-psychologos dynamic, the whole movement of soul-making, the whole potential of soul-making. You know, because um, wrapped up in a logos like that is, you know, either explicitly or implicitly is, and in most logoi as well, or a lot of logoi is, what is a human being, like I said, and what is important? What is actually important? Discrepancy-based processing, what does it tell me about what does it almost like um, <clears throat> imply in, in the kind of subtext and the quality of, of the, the idea? What does it imply about what a human being is and what's important? Included, wrapped up in a logos is ontology, the question of what's real, the assumptions about what's real, epistemology, about what's a valid way of knowing, cosmology, metaphysics. And all of this wrapped up in it affects the experience. So we want um, a, a conceptual frame, a conceptual ideas that actually um, support soul making, open soul making, support and open and um, support the opening of soul making, and also that allow the increase, because soul making is that increase in in the psyche, in the image, uh, the growth, the expansion, the widening, the deepening, the complexifying of the image and of the eros. In other words, the logos needs to be able to, <coughs> at certain points, support and allow that expansion of the whole soul-making dynamic. Which means that the logos needs to not be so fixed, or needs to be able to break and we replace it by something else or whatever. You can see, you know, also the logos of eros, the logos, the view of desire, let's say. And just compare, you know, oversimplistically, desire is a defilement. It's not okay. If that's the kind of logos and the subtext, that's how we're viewing desire. Uh, compared to, desire is okay, it's just another thing, everything's okay. Kind of loose, sort of slightly sloppy, maybe non-dual kind of teaching desire is okay everything's okay or a little more nuanced um, the desire that leads to the end of suffering is good but the desire that leads to an increase in suffering is bad is that enough of a delineation or uh, the, the, the desire is something beautiful and divine Four ideas, although in the last one you could say, well, it gets diverted or constricted uh, or contracted. You know, that's possible. Too, too simplistic. But you can see how differently um, the different ideas, the different logoi uh, and conceptions about desire would shape the experience. This is something we're going to, again, come back to. said it already, but we're going to come back to it. If you are in love and you have the sense, or you play with the idea, 
uh, that my being in love, our being in love, is somehow mirroring the divine eros. We are somehow, through our being in love, we are participating in a divine in-loveness, in a divine eros. And that becomes the way of looking, and the way of looking at your beloved, and the way of looking at your life and this moment. What does that open? What does that lead to? You know, there are many, there are many other variations we've already mentioned about how to view desire, um, uh, in, in, or the possible ways of viewing desire. But they all have different effects. We made that distinction: eros, uh, desire. Uh, sorry, eros is a subset of desire, and craving is a different subset, and all that. But there's other variations too. But the view, the logos, affects the experience. And I have to really acknowledge this and um, find out, find out how, what, why. <clears throat> and so we said that before. I'll say something else that I've said before as well, um, just because I think it's so important. If if our whole Dharma conceptual frame of thought, if our whole sort of edifice of Dharma conceptually is too narrow or not subtle enough or not sophisticated enough and not making the right distinctions, if it's maybe, I don't know, um, what might pass nowadays for a sort of typical Dharma conceptual framework, I'm not sure if that's true or accurate, um, but if it's too narrow and it doesn't have the right kind of uh, levels of subtlety and sophistication and openness, etc., um, then this, whatever it is, might be a sort of typical Dharma, um, can get quite entrenched and unquestioned and kind of stagnant and not realize, um, we don't realize then that it's just one possible way of looking, one possible conceptual framework, one possible set of conceptual distinctions. You know, whatever, if you say, be with what is, um, uh, everything's impermanent, everything's just flowing, uh, so let go because you can't hang on, and this is it, you know, this is it now. Um, that kind of simplistic dharma um, <clears throat> can very easily become just entrenched, unquestioned, a stagnant kind of dogma and not realize this is just a way of looking. This is just a set of conceptions that, that, that informs a way of looking, one among many possible others. It will have its effects. Others will have their effects. But if that if that happens, and, and it does become... Uh, something too narrow, not subtle and sophisticated enough, um, does become entrenched in that way, etc. Then um, what happens is we look at life that way and our hermeneutics, our interpretation of existence is constrained by that conceptual framework. <clears throat> we might think, oh, I'm not into conceptual frames, I'm not intellectual, I'm just, this is really simple, this is just really basic, true not conceptual at all, it's a conceptual framework and it constrains the interpretation of, it, of experience and existence. And it also then constrains experience, I've said this before, experience of what? Of self, of other, of world, of cosmos, of time, of desire, of eros, uh, certainly experience of soul-making. constrains the range of freedom that's available to us and the depth of freedom, <clears throat> both wide and deep, the kinds of freedom constrains our creativity in all kinds of ways, constrains 
um, our sense of beauty and, and again the range and the, and the diversity of the senses of beauty. <clears throat> now if you ask, um, well, what is the relationship uh, with, let's say, Pali Canon, uh, Pali Canon, the Pali Canon of what you're saying or this conceptual framework of all this business that we're talking about? What's the relationship then with Pali Canon Dharma? Um, I would I would ask in response. I would, I would say quite a lot in that, so I just want to kind of say some things right now. I would one question I would ask in response is who's Pali Canon? Whose interpretation of the Pali Canon? The Pali Canon, just like any other um, text, is always approached with an agenda and always approached with assumptions as well, with certain conceptual frameworks in place already, certain ways of looking in place or way of looking in place and available, a certain ontology, a certain epistemology, certain cosmology. Who's Pali Canon? Whose agenda? Whose assumptions? Whose conceptual framework? If I approach the Pali Canon with the agenda and the assumptions and the conceptual framework and the limited range of ways of looking and ontology, epistemology, cosmology, etc. of, let's say, secular modernism, uh, sort of based on classical science and a sort of mono monotheistic view of um, reality and a kind of existential... <coughs> one-dimensional universe and humanism. What am I going to get? What am I going to see? I'm going to see a secular modernist Pali canon. And then, curiously, the Buddha seems like a guy just like me. (laughs) Because I'm looking that way. I have an agenda. What would it be, we might ask, I think, more interesting, to to bring a postmodern you know, critique of modernism, a, a postmodern um, attitude and um, kind of agenda, if you like, to the Pali Canon. What would that give rise to? to? To me, that's actually much more interesting. But we bring an agenda, we bring a set of assumptions. What happens is we ignore this or that aspect of, the, let's in this case, the Pali Canon. We give a centrality of um, place to this or, and something else. Um, dependent are on our agenda and dependent on our assumptions and and we have a certain fantasy of the Buddha and a fantasy of as well as conception of what awakening is. All all of this comes into creating, if you like, the Pali Canon, creating, discovering the Pali Canon. I need to see this and I need to admit it. So a scholar, so called, and um and actually, I have to point out that scholarship itself is part fantasy. Scholarship itself is part fantasy. And again, I can say that from um, <laughs> personal experience, but, but um, scholarship itself is part fantasy. What goes on for the scholar that keeps them at it, that makes it alive for them? There's soul-making going on in scholarship, and it involves fantasy. But anyway, a scholar without a practice related to the Pali Canon, Pali Canon scholar, 
so-called scholar, without a practice and without really a lived engaging of, the, of, of that material in their life, in their practice, can't understand what the Pali Canon is about. Can't, doesn't, cannot claim that they understand it. We, someone who doesn't have practice and, and a, a kind of really um, passionate engagement with it can't understand it. And at the same time, yet a scholar who does have a practice that, they, that really matters to them and is engaging that material in their life, in their practice, they already have a fantasy and a conceptual framework. They already have an investment and an agenda and a perspective. <clears throat> so here, again, is a kind of version of, I don't know if it's the hermeneutic circle so much as a hermeneutical conundrum, a hermeneutical situation about interpreting the Pali Canon. If I, if I try and have this ob- objective, kind of almost quasi-scientific, classical scientific methodology there, because I don't practice, because it doesn't mean anything to me, I don't really care about it, I'm not engaging it, I can't, I don't, I'm not really going to understand it. Um, and if I do, I'm already bringing everything that I bring to it. And even someone who's supposedly not engaging brings their whole historical situation to it. And, and the assumptions of modernity and postmodernity, whatever it is. So here's a hermeneutical conundrum situation fact. Can I be honest and be aware of it? <clears throat> and what is the implication there? Usually what happens, historically, and, and it still goes on, um, actually, is that <coughs> we are we create, discover the Pali Canon just as we do with anything else that's meaningful to us, anything else that's involved in our soul making to whatever extent. There is creativity going on. But if I cloak it, my creative discovery, in the language of the tradition, in, let's say, Buddhist language, um, then it's not, it's almost like I smooth over it's as if, oh yeah, sure, we're all talking about the same thing. There's no problem. We're not creating anything here. We're just discovering. Um, because we all use words like Four Noble Truths, and we all use words like suffering and awakening or enlightenment or whatever it is. It might mean completely different things, utterly divergent um, range of meanings of, of these Buddhist words. But because we're all using the, the words of the tradition, it's, like, it's, all, it's okay. We must be... Uh, so, somehow it gets it's it it cloaks the fact that we're creating <clears throat> and not just discovering and it and it also uh, hides the the fact that we're we may be talking about really really radically different uh, directions and ideas etc. So when the Dharma uh, comes to to a new culture, a culture that's new for it uh, historically, um, now it's, it's happening in the West. The Dharma is coming here; it's just in its very early infancy. Not even that, not even out of the birth canal, really. Um, or just as it went to China or Japan. Um, what happens there? You know, really, if you if you take. Uh, Japanese Zen, let's say Soto, Rinzai Zen, or something, or uh, Shingon, or you, you know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> first of all, there's quite a variety there, but but the, it, it sometimes you'd be hard pressed. I feel to to the you know I don't know if, if the Buddha was alive, would he even recognize that it's the same thing that he talked about? Maybe some words are the same, but it's so vastly different. Or even what passes for Zen, uh, or what has the label of Zen um, in in Western cultures now. 
I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just trying to be expose some, some something here, and I said, let's be honest about something. <clears throat> if I have this, um, if it really matters to me about whether some conception is uh, how it relates to the Pali Canon, and is it the Pali Canon, is it real Buddhism and all that. So there's historically a way of doing this that still goes on to do with cloaking the, the creation, uh, the creativity, and kind of um, using using the traditional words for to, to kind of cover something that's vastly divergent. A range of teachings and directions that are vastly divergent. Or, you know, again, <coughs> historically there's the, um, what happened with the Mahayana and the Vajrayana in India is you get the, the teaching that the Buddha said this, historically he said this, but he said it in secret to a small select band of disciples. And so, again, there's a kind of historical factual claim and now they preserve this teaching in secret, and now we're revealing it. Or now it's it's uh, this is this is the tradition. It goes back to the historical factual Buddha, or um, the Buddha is, uh, is revealing this on another plane of existence. Uh, and I actually, you know, strange as that may sound, to some people it actually makes more more sense. It feels more viable to me if you open up the the language of who the Buddha is and who my mind is and etc. Um, or you get the, a, a, a terma was found, a, 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 an actual teaching was found um, by this particular person, uh, Tulku or whatever, found this old teaching, this ancient original teaching, a scroll or whatever it is. <clears throat> or you get the, um, the the sort of modern modern version of what the Buddha meant was this. Uh, when he said this, this is what, and this is uh, and this sort of it's. All of it is trying to claim authority and authenticity, and those words are are related, um, via a fantasy of origins and via the particular fantasy and agenda that one brings to the Dharma, to the Pali Canon, to whatever it is, or the Mahayana text, or whatever it is in, in, in front of one that one is invested in. Well, I don't think now that the Dharma can grow, and it needs to grow if 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 it's an infant, if it's a baby coming out of the birth canal, it will grow, it will change, it has already changed. Western Dharma has already um, taken on, as I mentioned in one talk already on this retreat, has already um, integrated into it certain concepts that were absolutely not there in the Pali Canon, um, or. Zen Buddhism, like certain psychotherapeutic concepts and certain neuroscientific uh, ideas, we just take for granted. So it's already happening. Um, But nowadays, um, in our culture, the Dharma can't grow convincingly with this, for me, not convincingly at all, with this kind of appeal to the um, authenticity or authority of the actual reality of a tradition, as if that's something real, and we're not owning um, the fantasy, the fantasy of scholarship, um, the agenda, the assumptions, the concepts that one brings brings to it. All of that. Uh, for me, that that just that that that, that can't, that's not convincing. The cat is out of the bag. Uh, the cat's out the bag. Um, in regard to our hermeneutical uh, relationship with with texts and tradition <coughs> and, and all that and historical figures and if you know I'm from modern philosophy a philosopher I'm very very fond of um, 
Hans-Georg Gadamer um, talked a lot, wrote a lot about this, the hermeneutics and our situation in history, um, looking back at the text. It doesn't mean we shouldn't inquire and talk about the Pali Canon, and, and, uh, uh, but there is no um, pristine, unsoiled actuality of, that we're going to arrive at there. And to think that we are is, is philosophically naive, philosophically and psychologically naive, I would say. Cat's out the bag. And we are too aware now of the cultural and historical context. So if someone said, the Buddha in secret taught neuroscience um, to a select band of disciples or whatever, I mean, maybe some people believe that, I don't know. Or the Buddha, actually what's more common, the Buddha you, you know, um, did teach this uh, in certain psychotherapeutic um, kind of interpretations of, of what's happening. But I don't know, it doesn't really, for me it doesn't really, uh, it's not very convincing. What about being in dialogue with <coughs> with the Buddha, with the Buddha Dharma, with the tradition? Dialogue, dialogos, dialogue, in dialogue. We're in a conversation, uh, in a back and flow. And that's part of loving a tradition and respecting a tradition, is actually admitting, like when we love, we're in dialogue with our lover. We're in dialogue uh, with... Um, with with this dialogos back and forth dia means through it also means dia means to it also means a dia means through so the, there's this kind of logos goes through one way and the other it's like like water through um, <coughs> through other water flowing both ways mixing and coming back um, to be in dialogue with the Buddha Dharma with the tradition with the Buddha with the Sangha. So to me, it's important to acknowledge that, and then and then creativity. Um, actually, we're acknowledging that we are creative. We are creating, discovering. If you want the Pali Canon or whatever text, and we add things, and we <clears throat> all of that. So to me, it's it's um, it's disingenuous to to try uh, to convince um, others that we're sort of discovering uh, something authentic and independent <coughs> of, of uh, you know, independently existing. And the fantasy of that, the fantasy of historical facticity. <coughs> Let me just say a little bit more about this. I mentioned that word epistemicide, it's a great word. Um, uh, the, the 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 killing, like the side, epistemicide, like homicide, the killing of ways of knowing, the erasure, the eradication, the starving, uh, and therefore killing of ways of knowing. So this is something that actually happened anyway in Western society <coughs> with the emergence of modernism, starting with the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, but re- really the Western Enlightenment, that... A certain way of knowing um, that that uh, modelled on cla- the, the the methodology of classical sort of um, it's called Descartian and Newtonian and uh, Baconian science, um, the Western Enlightenment was claimed to be superior and to reveal the one. The project was to 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 reveal the one universal reality, and there's with that one universally valid way of knowing things. Okay. 
So it's a mixture of empiricism and rationalism, basically, and sort of the, the basic scientific method. But again, if you know much about <coughs> recent Western philosophy, um, this has been radically questioned. Okay, this this um, the whole project of modernism and the Enlightenment project, the Western Enlightenment project, in relation to ways of knowing. Ways of looking and what reality is supposed to be radically questioned by postmodern philosophy um, philosophers of science even um, uh, um, post colonial theory um, feminist studies um, and 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 even philosophers I think I mentioned this in that talk even from the so called analytical anglo american tradition wilfred sellers and w v o quine etc <coughs> so rigorous analytical logical philosophers question that whole um take on epistemology and um uh, sort of monotheistic take on epistemology and uh, ontology and and so called reality and ways of knowing and all that. So that in this, in this, um, uh, what we have now is a situation where <clears throat> the yogi saying that the trees were calling, the forest was calling me, as she said so beautifully and felt and experienced, or, or, you know, I can feel this tree, this particular tree that I visit is happy at my return today, is happy at my approaching it again. Well, when people say um, in this culture or in other cultures, oh, we. Um, are sensing, we're perceiving the spirits uh, that are around now. Or um, my friend says, I'm, I'm, I'm getting information. It's like my ovaries are, are receiving information. I'm knowing through my ovaries and through my tongue. We talk about, we've talked about a sense of divinity, <coughs> a sense, a sensation of divinity. And many, actually, infinitely many more possibilities. All these kinds of ways of knowing that they that are, you know, implicit or claimed there, or spoken to, or spoken of, um, through this uh, epistemicide of of modernism and secular enlightenment, so called, they are discounted, dismissed, and often actually ridiculed. Sometimes openly, and and also in uh, in in some dharma centres. So either explicitly uh, or uh, implicitly discounted, dismissed. There is an explicit or implicit epistemicide happening. And then so the whole project of to have, uh, we're just teaching mindfulness without a cosmology. Again, ha 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 ha. Really? Is there not a cosmology wrapped up in the whole presentation there? And what is that cosmology? What's well, the one-dimensional cosmology of classical, <coughs> classical science? Empiricism with a bit of rationalism thrown in. If one of us was teaching that way, <coughs> and uh, let's say, uh, I, do, I don't know, someone from a, 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 an Amazonian tribe or a First Nation Native American person um, heard it, and they accused the teacher of colonialism, of this kind of, uh, of kind of foisting, peddling um, this this kind of uh, view, and, and essentially an attempt at epistemicide, a very successful attempt, uh, not completely successful, but 
pretty successful so far. What would the teacher say? Effectively, what you're saying is basically dismissing and discounting and ridiculing um, ways of knowing that I have grown up with, that are very meaningful to me, etc. If I'm teaching um, a kind of <coughs> secular dharma or secular mindfulness or whatever, whatever, um, am I in fact peddling or enforcing a, a, what is effectively a kind of white man's religion, a white man's religion, and even religion when I when I doesn't occur to me, it seems to me that's the last thing furthest thing away from what I'm doing. Am I effectively kind of foisting that, enforcing that somehow? I, I've been wondering about this for a little while, you know, um, and I think it's great and, and really an important start, the, the kind of diversity initiatives in terms of people of colour and um, gender <coughs> orientation and, and um, identities and... Uh, sexual orientations and identities and all that, um, that's starting to open in some Dharma centers and dialogues. And I think that's really, really important. But within that, you know, how many people have stopped to consider that actually a certain presentation of the Dharma, which is sometimes quite aggressive, um, again, explicitly or implicitly, certain kind of secularized Dharma may actually be a form of proselytizing um, a kind of violence that's akin to sort of um, the, the Christian missionaries of, 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 of centuries in the past. So we don't actually, we, we you know, importantly we consider language and inclusion and um, the, the environment that we're teaching in and <clears throat> the way we um, might uh, be more inviting or more inclusive to, to different groups and identities, etc., and respectful of that. And, um, but but how many people are actually considering the content? <clears throat> Is there a blindness here? That, that actually there may be something that doesn't um, allow or invite or sit well with certain... Um, groups of people um, because of the content. So you know, um, in America, um, the slaves brought over from Africa, etc., um, and enslaved there, or uh, the uh, or, or in Africa, you know, African Americans, whether via slavery or 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 Africans in Africa, some of them um, took on, or you could say were, again, foisted, it was foisted on, they were forced to, to take up Christianity. But they took it on, and um, not, not all, but look, look at how much they gave it, um, the dimensions they give and gave to it, the dimensions of, of, of soul their soulfulness. It became soul-making for them in their ways. And it had to include more body, more hips, more groove than uh, what the might, uh, white, white missionaries uh, might have had uh, in their, in their um, presentation. So it was taken on board, but something had to be added to it to make it um, 
real, fertile, beautiful soul-making. And if you prohibit that, whatever it is that needs to be added, which, which may need to be certain epistemologies, certain, certain uh, ways of knowing, you're actually um, no better than a white missionary or whatever it is that uh, would, would actually even try to disallow that. So maybe um, what we consider a sort of stripped-down secularist dharma in the way we present it, um, maybe that's amputating something, neutering something, as I said, someone told me a while ago. Uh, maybe we're smothering something to death. What? Yeah, certain ways of being with the body, certain ways of knowing with the body certain embodiment, the hips, um, certain ways of knowing. Epistemicide, like I said, is there's a killing of certain ways of knowing. Another phrase, uh, epistemic cleansing. I said I didn't come up with these phrases. They, they actually, uh, I've been thinking about this for a while. And, um, and then Catherine taught at IMS recently and she had a, a conversation with one of the staff people there who's kind of alive to this. And there's a teacher, apparently, Bonnie Duran, who's um, also uh, really uh, um, drawing attention to this uh, colonialism, epistemicide, etc., within the Dharma. So there's a kind of, without... I, I doubt it's with realizing, you know, I don't think it's intentional, but, but it's a, there's an enforcing of a cosmology and a metaphysics and, a lim, and limited fantasies and images of awakening. All of that is kind of enforced, and it's like closing doors and creating a kind of prison rather than opening doors. <clears throat> and if a person might say, very tempting to say, no, 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 we're not doing that, we're just teaching a certain mode of mind that bring, like called mindfulness, which brings freedom. Well, I, I would actually say, mm, not sure, because I don't think it's a very deep freedom that comes from just that, if the mindfulness uh, doesn't go beyond that um, deep, uh, you know, into, into deeper insights um, about reality. If it doesn't include this movement into the unfabricated, the understanding of dependent origination at that very deep level, and doesn't, if it doesn't open ways of looking, the freedom of ways of looking, if it doesn't liberate ways of looking, and so sometimes um, dogma and truth, both things that most people would run and, and believe that we're a million miles away from or want to renounce uh, being dogmatic or, or drawing in that word <coughs> truth, which has become very unfashionable now. But yet it's there underpinning things without admitting uh, or, or realizing it. How much is that the case? Last thing about this... Um, Epistemology, and then pick up later. But um, uh, I heard a meditate, uh, the Dharma teacher say in a Q and A, one can't go 
in a Dharma center in a med- on a meditation retreat. One can't go, he said, one can't go from meditation to epistemology. In other words, just because you have certain experiences in meditation, you can't take that as saying anything about reality. It's not a valid um, epistemology. It's not a, a valid source of knowledge. Um, now, I, I could say, okay, fine, you can say that if you want. Um, a- absolutely. Um, but where do you get your epistemology from? You must, you must have some epistemology. Okay, so you, you're just saying that for you it's not coming from meditation. Um, I don't think you can say that for every, everyone. In other words, w- what gives you the right to dismiss that as a source of epistemology? And where do you get yours from? So nowadays, um, in, in Western philosophy, so, some of it is, is quite fashionable. Um, for example, Richard Rorty and other philosophers, it's quite fashionable to sort of um, recognize the sort of um, hermeneutical conundrum w- with regard to um, uh, epistemology, but also uh, ontology and all of that, and also recognize the um, kind of collapse, if, if you like, of the whole project of modernity um, <clears throat> and kind of coming up with the one grand theory of everything that reveals the truth uh, and, and the way of knowing to know that truth, etc. Um, so philosophers like Richard Rorty said, respond to all that, kind of reiterate it and respond, uh, say, abandon, abandon epistemology, abandon ontology, abandon all that kind of attempt in philosophy. And, and what it amounts to is a kind of just shrugging shrugging at the whole um, question of uh, ways of knowing. And maybe one one comes up with different ideas, and for him it's solidarity with your community, just all kind of believing in the same, uh, same sort of epistemology, ways of knowing, but kind of letting other communities have theirs. Uh, and so that sounds quite nice. But effectively what happens is there's a reverting... Um, that to the default epistemology, the default ways of knowing. In other words, you can say that as a sort of intellectual position um, and say something like, well, you could say, there's an, I don't have an epistemology or an ontology or cosmology, but you actually live one. You live one. You live an epistemology. In other words, there's certain <coughs> experiences that you trust as being valid sources of knowledge and uh, in, intimations of what's real or make certain conclusions about what's real, and you live your life based on that, and you live your life with a certain sense of what the cosmos is. So to say there's no epistemology, no ontology, no cosmology, I mean, that's, that's, um, that's not tenable, as we said before. But because there's not the flexibility of the way, ways of looking, because there's not the meditative training to actually adopt different conceptual frameworks and, and different ways of looking, actually see the experience open, inhabit, if you like, different universes, um, there's just a river. You can say what you like philosophically, intellectually, and write it and write it very nice. But there's just a reversion to the default. And where did you get that default from? The default is probably mostly from the dominant modernist Western Western culture. It's just what you receive as much as you re- learn in high school and whatever most people around you are sort of believing. So you know. A, a, a question would be, <coughs> why, uh, where do you get your epistemology from? And, and 
you know, is it from the, the what's just what's popular around you, what's dominant in the culture? Is it just a kind of laziness uh, that that kind of where it just slinks to in in the being um, without questioning it? Is it um, just your own personal inclination? Am I? Are you admitting that? Am I admitting that? <clears throat> Why do I choose this or that? Uh, whatever it is, if it's I get my epistemology from logic, I get my epistemology from. Um, uh, a, you know, a high school science book, or I get my epistemology from the dominant culture, or I get my epistemology from my meditation experience, I get my epistemology from what it says in such a scripture or what such and such a teacher says. Why? And, and is it possible to justify any of those epistemologies? I don't think so. Ultimately justify, I mean. Always with, this is why, partly why I think epistemology is so interesting, is that always... Um, an, an epistemology, a, a decision, a lived decision about what's real and what isn't, um, will, will come to rest, will be found to rest on some or other assumptions that are not actually provable, that are ultimately not provable. I, I, I end up just having some recourse to some basis that's not actually provable. So, can we be conscious of this? Where am I getting my epistemology? And what are my claims for it? <clears throat> if I realize this, that epistemology rests on some assumptions, which something somewhere needs to rest on some assumptions that are not finally provable, then what are my options? Where does that leave me? Am I just going to smooth this over? Am I going to talk as if it's true, but then revert to <clears throat> uh, as if there's a certain truth? I uh, avoid the word truth. Um, it's a bad word because it's not very fashionable now and philosophers have shown that it's not it's not a good thing to go bandying around or assuming. But basically I'm reverting to something that says that, that, that assumes a truth. What are my options if I really hold this uh, insight? So where, you know, what's happening in the epistemology? You know, um, Classical scientific method, like I like point out, rests partly on <coughs> rationalism and reductionism, reducing everything to units and atoms and how these work together in a coherent way, and um, atoms and then subatomic particles or whatever it is, or <coughs> neural processes or whatever. Partly um, it rests on rationalism and reductionism. But as uh, Jeffrey J. Kripal, scholar, pointed out, um, and he's drawing on um, someone else's thought called Charles Tart. He said, rationalism and reductionism, if you're choosing that as your epistemological framework, uh, that is the basis of it, um, which a lot of people do. Um, rationalism and reductionism are also what he calls state-specific truths. This is the bit that he got from Charles Tart. Um, that is, they are specific to highly trained egoic forms of awareness. But their states of mind, in other words, rationalism or reductionism is something that um, pertains or is possible in a certain state of mind that's actually highly trained. Um, but these states of mind that allow rationalism or reductionism and the epistemology and all that that comes out of that, these states of mind are more easily reproduced and communicated, at least within our present Western culture. In other words, we are trained in that epistemology, we are trained in that way of looking, we are trained in those states of mind that 
give rise or, or in which rationalism and reduction sort of holds sway. It's a training. Training of a state of mind, training of a way of looking. What does that sound like? Oh, sounds like a kind of how I would conceive of meditation. That we're training ways of looking. It's just that we're so used to certain ways of looking, certain epistemology, and certain states of mind in our culture that these become much more easily reproduced and communicated, taught to others. But if we think of meditation as the whole um, range of flexibility of learning and developing and moving between ways of looking, it starts to take a different kind of um, contextual place. Again, what are my options? So we'll, we'll, we'll pursue this.